I'm here with Kyler Moppert this evening, and we're going to talk about a number of subjects as we've covered in prior podcasts. The intended audience could be anyone from a senior in college to a recent professional uh, entering the workforce, and generally anyone who is considering life and career decisions. So Kyler, tell us a little bit about your background. We don't need the whole Louisiana history of the family, but at least, um, you know, where do you work now? What education did you get? And um, how'd you, how'd you get there? So, so you don't need to know, like, I don't need to cover the Louisiana purchase or Napoleon, right? Everybody knows Napoleon. Okay. Dynamite. He's got Tina, the, the llama. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll skip, uh, I'll skip the first 300 years. And um, so uh, my name's Kyler Moffert. Um, Dietrich and I went to college together uh, at Loyola University in New Orleans. Um, I, you know, even uh, maybe start a little bit before there because I don't even know if you know this, but um, my my mom worked at Loyola. I never wanted to go to New Orleans to, to Loyola. I hated New Orleans, um, and I had this great opportunity that. I'm thankful for, but at the time probably was a little ungrateful for, which was um, a, a great career, uh, a great um, tuition incentive to go to school there. And that ultimately led me to the path of, um, you know, leaving boarding school for high school and coming to New Orleans, meeting you. We were fraternity brothers that uh, I was in college for way too long, uh, as as many of my friends have said. Um, lots of people go to college for seven years, doctors, <laughs> veterinarians, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> Psychologists, um, and then also business undergrads, you know? So um, what, what ended up happening there was my, the, uh, let me think, the day, the day that I was supposed to be attending my sophomore year class, first class of the year. Monday was the day that Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. And so I went to school for a full year, joined the fraternity. You know, we were fraternity brothers for a long time. And then all of our lives were disrupted. And, and um, I ended up taking um, six months off of school, like everybody did, because we couldn't go back until after Christmas. When I say that, meaning you couldn't go back to New Orleans until after Christmas. Like we weren't legally allowed to, it was, it was martial law, right? You couldn't go home. It was just destruction zone. And so um, I ended up taking two years off of college and um, did really poor in school and, and needed a reset button anyway. Long story short, ended up going back and finishing. And then I graduated in 2011, I guess. And I was class of 2004. Um, and, uh, or that was my, that was the first year I went to college. Left there, um, I had been working for a company called Fastenal for three years by that point in time, part-time. When I left, I went full-time and relocated to last year at Louisiana. Um, I stayed with Fastenal for 10 years, and Fastenal was a really fantastic company. If you never wanted to ever get fired and were okay making about 50 k a year, until the end of time this sounds like a, a private sector version of government work kind of oh uh, yeah you know um yeah kind of I, I, it might have been easier to get fired from the government potentially but 
Um, anyway, yeah, so I did that. And then, um, I was, I, I moved up really far within the company. I was, you know, part-time for years and then I went to sales and I was a general manager for, um, a few branches in the state. There were like 56 branches in Louisiana and I had the number one branch for two years in Lafayette. And that ended up, um, <clears throat> that ended up, uh, getting me promoted to a district manager position. Um, and then are, are you familiar with, uh, um, what's it called? The Peter principle? You oh, have to. You're I, in, you, work, again, government, you work for the government. Government owns this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Peter principle is where you are promoted until you're promoted to your level of incompetence. And what that means is um, all of the positions underneath your current level you excelled in until you finally get promoted to a point where you have no idea what the F you're doing anymore and you just are a, a, are a delegator and a supervisor of other people that know what they're doing. Okay. <laughs> and, and so anyway, I was a district manager um, and I really enjoyed that, but um, I, that kind of got boring over time and um, they merged a couple of districts together and I moved into like a specialist role where I wasn't really held accountable for much, didn't have to do a lot anymore. And that's really, I, I don't operate well in those situations. I need challenges and, and like entropy and pushback. I need, I need that back pressure to keep me moving forwards. And, um, and so I ended up leaving the company in, oh man, this is three years ago. Um, so I left and I went into sales for this company in Mississippi um, called TGC, and it stands for Transformer Gaskets and Components. What it was is we were a supplier of components, like electrical components to repair transformers when they blew up on power lines. That's what we did. Our customers were people like Intergy, and Clico, and, and people like that, um, and co-ops and, and everything. And I, um, once again, was uh, promoted to my level of incompetence and I was promoted to the director of the company. Like they gave me the keys to the, the castle and said, good luck. And, and so I relocated to Mississippi was two years ago, last month. So I've been in Mississippi for about two years now. And, um, once I got into the office every day, I realized very quickly that I was hired as the captain of the Titanic post iceberg. Okay, so like in between, <laughs> so like imagine instead of the captain going down with the, with the ship, imagine if the captain just put his hat on somebody else and was like, congratulations, son, you're captain now. That was me. <laughs> and, and so this company- That's a field promotion. Failing. That's an honor. It still counts, right? You know, and, and so um, I was uh, promoted to director of the company and, you know, big, big pay raise and relocated and all this stuff and- um, it was, um, just a dumpster fire of a company it had no culture. And just to, to make a long story short, if anybody ever has an opportunity to work for a, an equity company that grows through acquisitions, acquisitions only just run away as fast as you possibly can, because there is absolutely no culture or long-term value for you there. That, that would be advice piece number one of this is um, if I can save one person from wasting years of their life on an equity company that promises big things and never backs anything up, 
just just run away. And um, that's what happened was essentially in my industry, which is like electrical distribution is what they call it because you're you know, distributing power across a grid. All of these little mom and pop companies, they, they grew up organically. It was family companies and then they, the kids would grow up, the kids would take over and they'd be around for 30 and 40 and 50 years. And all these, this equity company called uh, Emerald Transfer came in and bought up like five of them and they all hated each other forever <laughs> you like they've all hated each other since the beginning of time and now they are forced to play together and it was just volatile the company was had terrible ethics and and it, it was just not a good place to work and so but i love that um, because because you know of course a key component of most of my courses is ethics and those who can teach uh wait no that's not how that saying goes at all um but anyway no, we'll just nope. We'll just make that work, but but yeah, it sounds like you had the Hatfields acquiring the McCoys and saying, "Hey, let's work together." Bingo! Yeah, imagine there were three other families in that feud that you didn't know about. <laughs> you know what what it what it was actually most like was um you know in, in Anchorman when all of the news stations started to like yes. battle out in in, yes. the, in the back alley and they're like Channel Seventeen, you've got to spin on the bottom of the list for years. Like, <laughs> what are you doing here? And, and and so like imagine having like all of those news crews have to become like one station. That's what it was like. It doesn't work. And um and so anyway, um I am a very solutions focused person. I'm not a quitter. That's why I don't stop drinking ever. Um you could probably obviously relate to that. And I I did not want to just throw my hands in the air and admit defeat. And so, um, I, not to sound cliche, I hate when people are uh, disgustingly optimistic, but um, we really liked Madison. My wife loves it here. We bought a fantastic house. It's a great community. Um, it's it's a nice little bubble, you know. It's it's the nicest city in Mississippi, which can't be that hard to do, honestly. But I don't know. Still, you, you must not have been to Oxford because that was a culture shock for me. I had been to 49 of, uh, of, of the U.S. Uh, contiguous states or, or, or U.S. states and, and contiguous territories. I'd been to every, everything except for Alaska. Right. And, and uh, then I went to Mississippi to, to law school and Oxford was like a microcosm of Texas. It was where all the people who didn't make it into UT or A&M, but had a little bit of family money sure. decided to go. And then I, I was buying $10 hamburgers in Mississippi. So I yeah. don't know, but Madison is pretty yeah. nice. Well, Oxford is a co- Oxford is like an asterisk city. Okay. It's, it's nice because it's a college town. The, the industry of Oxford is Ole Miss. Um, and uh, for the same reason why you know, parts of Baton Rouge are nice. Um, and it's because they're probably close to LSU. But if you remove that, Oxford would suck. <laughs> it wouldn't be you would just have like you would just have it would it, like people wouldn't even know what you're talking about it wouldn't be relevant in any way shape or form madison is nice because of um because of uh, restrictive covenants which is just a, um, a more appropriate way to say it has hoas they don't let you do a goddamn thing and um it, but it's all for like justifiable nicety reasons of the sanctity of the city it's a nice place so we moved here and um, I 
over, you know, in that story of like college and career and everything, I spanned about like 13 years pretty fast. I'm 34 years old, started working when I was 21 and in college. And so, um, or maybe, I don't know, whatever, 12 years, something like that. And I learned over that time period that um, I am not good at working for other people um, for a number of reasons. It's not like, it's not something, some low hanging fruit thought like you might have like, Oh, he doesn't like authority or, um, something like, you know, I get, don't get along with superiors or anything like that. What it is, is that I just, I, I, I don't typically believe that that many other people are smarter than I am. And there's even a lower chance that I'm going to end up working for that person. And um, <laughs> you're, you're, you're playing the playing the odds. The statistics say, yeah, uh, yeah, all 50% of yeah. people are below the median and uh, they, they, yeah. they all the people above it cannot possibly be at this one company. Correct. Yeah, exactly. And so um, what, what ended up happening was I just uh, the problems that I had, because I'm very self-aware, extremely self-aware. I work through problems and I work through um through things very differently than other people. And that's something we should come back to is the way that I think in this term called casuistry, which is actually a Jesuit term, uh, if you're familiar with it. Um, I'd like to talk more about that because that has changed my life. But um, ultimately, I, I realized that I, it wasn't like, a, it wasn't like I'm combative. I just, once you get to, like, once you get into upper management and you see the P&L, and you see the operational portions of the business and you see the gears turning and you hear the engine revving for the business. And then you hear what corporate or the CEO has to say. And a lot of times those things are very mismatched and it's, it's intentional. It's mismatched. It's almost downplaying our success so that we don't have to pay out bonuses to people that are expecting them. And when you see, when you peek behind the curtain, the wizard of Oz is all of a sudden much less impressive. Right. And um, and and it was at that point in time, I was like, well, I'll just be the Wizard of Oz. Like, that's just what I'll do. I'll just I'll create my own castle. That's what I'll do. And um, this kind of barrels off into the idea of the man. OK, not trying to sound sexist or anything, but the man is typically the guy you work for. Right. The guy at the top, if you will. And this this also interesting thought of that especially since you're, in a, you know, you're teaching a class, you have students listening to this, you should be concerned with the fact that nobody ever teaches you or even acknowledges that you could be the man or how to do that. Everything that we learn in school is usually, over, over years and years and years of curriculum, in hindsight, is almost always built to make us get in line, stay in line and work for somebody. School, college, education in general, institutionalized learning, it is all geared to help you be effective in an extremely structured environment and also help you get employed, like be, get a job. That's the thing, that's the dangling carrot of college, right? Even high school. If you don't finish high school, you're not going to get a good job. And then if you want a better job, well, you know, now you got to go to college. And that, dang, that carrot's always dangling out in front of you. Well, entrepreneurialism is the whole, like, F your carrot, I'm going to grow a garden of carrots. 
Okay. And that idea is never really taught to you because number one, it's extremely uncomfortable for most people because you have to be, sorry, you cannot be risk adverse. You can't be afraid of taking chances. You can't be afraid of, um, of loss. You can't be more focused on what you might lose than not, than what you could gain. Um, and uh, that's not for everybody. So well, the past I mean, couple of years. When you, you mentioned that, like the, the loss, I, I think immediately that the forest is scary, right? Whether you're thinking of the Princess Bride or, or any other sort of myth or lore in, in book or, or movie, the forest yep. is scary. And that's what you're being asked to, to do instead of just focusing on the tree, right? That standardized test, that final exam. So the tree is knowable. The tree is, is manageable. But that forest... Yep. It's the unknown. Yeah, it's terrifying. But but like like what if what if that forest gets named after you one day because you conquered it? You know, like that that's the thing that's the thing that we're never told. And I, I understand there has to be Indians. There can't not everybody can be a chief. But most importantly, so such a like minute percent of the population has any desire to be a chief in any capacity. Most people want to float not be pushed too hard, not stress out, make a good living, go home, see their families, repeat the next day. Okay, that's that's the program in which a lot of people attach their happiness to. Um, and what's most interesting about that is COVID blew that dam up for everybody in the United States. Um, you ha- If you had stability, whether it was for the government – whether it was for academia, whether it was you were an accountant at a at a law firm, it doesn't matter what occupation you were. COVID, COVID had an effect on your life, and if you were on somebody else's boat, meaning if you were a passenger on the ship, and and you were hired to be a part of the ship, but still you're riding along wherever the ship can go, you could be your your head could be chopped off at any moment. You know that's out of your control. I guess is my point, and so. You know, kind of get us back on the track here of what I was saying. I really despised working for other people um, because I knew my own leadership ability. I, I had maybe a an attractive level of confidence in my ability and what I could do if I applied myself. And um, what I ended up doing was um, I, I own another company. Um, I've had it for oh, five years, a little over five years. Uh, it's called Louisiana Bow Hunter. I'm a big outdoorsman. I love to hunt fish and all of that. And so back in 2015, I, I realized that, um, <clears throat> or I got hooked up with a guy that started a company called Louisiana Bow Hunter, and he didn't market it well. And he went into debt trying to build it. So we became business partners and set this agreement that if I invested and in recouped our money and um, you know kept buying inventory and selling it and selling it and, and kind of growing the business that, you know, I, I could be business partners with him. And five years, you know, two years later, I bought him out. Three years later, here we are. Um, that company, is, it does, it's not a ton of money a, a year. It's a total side business, meaning like it takes very little input from me. Um, it does about $100,000 a year in revenue. And it probably profits twenty to $30,000 a year, which I guess is like, I guess in, in saying that out loud, I don't talk that's about like it very six often. professors' salaries. 
Yeah, it's a pretty substantial amount of money, but at the same time, I don't. I put all that money back into it. It's not like don't don't think that I'm buying a new car every year. You know, like I I haven't taken any money out of the company. That's what the company profits. I pay taxes on that, and then I use the leftover money to buy inventory the next year. I've bootstrapped that whole thing since the beginning. My initial investment was twenty nine hundred dollars. That's what I bought inventory with. And then I flipped it, folded it in half, flipped it, folded it in half, flipped it and folded it in half. So many dozens and dozens and dozens of times now that the company would do between fifty and a hundred thousand dollars a year in revenue, and I've never had to put another dollar back into it. Um, and so I'm. This might mean something to some people, it might not, but I'm a bootstrapper. I don't believe in going into debt before something proves its viability. Um, I do. I do believe in investing once it like catches momentum, but I don't think you need to take out $10,000 to build a website for something that you have a fantasy dream about working on. Um, that's a good way to lose $10,000. And with uh, where I was going with that was I was constantly changing vendors for apparel. That's 70% of our revenue came from apparel. The other 30% came from um advertising advertisements the podcast and videos and social media because we have about twenty five thousand people that follow us on facebook i want to say we're going to cross ten thousand on instagram like any second now right there at the, the cusp of it and um so we have a pretty large following wait what's what's the instagram handle so i can follow it it's called louisiana bowhunter I'm, I'm quite sure it's Nothing that's ever crossed your mind ever, District. I, I, I am drinking yeah. high tea and bow hunting, sir. <laughs> and so, um, anyway, uh, yeah, I'm a, a big bow hunter, a big outdoorsman, like I said. And, and the, the, just for a very quick tangent, the thing that I love about bow hunting is that the deer has the entire advantage. Okay, like you, uh, you are in the deer's living room, and he you know, he or she, you know, both of them, they have every upper hand on you. They, they have their nose, they have their eyes, their sense, you know, their sense of um, smell and hearing and everything. And, and um, so to, to kill an animal with a bow is, is my, my opinion, the most um, rewarding way, because it's not, I don't like gun hunting that much because you can shoot a deer that's 400 yards away and they never even knew you were in the same you know, zip code is them, but a deer, you got to shoot them at like six yards. And there's about 7 million things that have to go right before that moment. Um, it's not as easy as just drawing back and shooting them. I mean, there's a lot that can go wrong. And, uh, and so it's, it is the closest thing to like playing chess with an animal and the, and the, and the animal's the chess master. All right. And so I started having a change up apparel vendors every year because they would either their pricing would increase dramatically or they would have such high turnover that nobody was left in the company to make what i had ordered last year or they just the customer service just turned to garbage and so what i had decided i was going to do was um i was going to create an llc i was going to buy the equipment that my vendors used for me to use to make my stuff, not from them, but just the same equipment. And I was going to create my own apparel company for myself. And I was going to profit the markup that they would have to me 
and I would make a little extra money. I'd get my cost of goods down. I would own equipment. I'd have another LLC, and um, and I would be in my, I would be in charge of my own supply chain. Um, and so I did that, and it started out with these things called leather patch hats. Hats are universal. You know, shirts have to fit everybody specifically, but a hat is adjustable, so hats sell very well as apparel, and they're also lower risk from an inventory standpoint because of that you don't have to order 150 shirts if you want to sell have enough to cover everybody's size and color preference a hat is like oh i'm gonna sell 50 hats of this style i'll order 50 you know and there's nothing left over and so i started um trying to figure out how to make these things called leather patch hats because nobody would sell them to me at a good enough price for me to be able to mark them up to my retail outlets which with that brand, I'm in, I have I have my apparel or a rack, if you will, like a, a stand selling my goods at 27 outlets in the state of Louisiana. <clears throat> and um, so if you know anything about margin or cost of goods, you have to be able to make money selling it to the shop. And the shop needs to be able to make 30 to 40 percent margin selling it to the end user. And it's called it's called margin stacking. OK, but usually as a. As a the fair assessment on the values of things. This might, it's right, might really mess with some of your listeners' heads when you hear this. But most things that you buy retail cost somewhere around twenty-five percent of what you bought them for to make. Okay, that's the cost of that item. And a lot, a lot value, of my students are supply cycle majors, and and we'll we'll hit on some dimming because you've you've already elicited quite a few dimming quotes out of my out of the recesses of my. Uh, wine and, and age-addled brain where I'm thinking the most important figures that one needs for management are unknown or unknowable, right? And you're citing these 30%, 25% figures. So I, I'm loving this. The dimming is going to come out tonight, but but I, a lot of the supply cycle folks are, are, are really going to appreciate what you're saying. Yeah, I think I have I had a feeling this is going well since this is the longest I've ever heard you not say something. You know, I also so, I also do do have other things to occupy my time over here at the dining room table, so I'm oh, I'm gotcha. just enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I um, so like I was saying, if if you bought something for a hundred dollars, and let's assume just for easy math that the manufacturer and the retailer both want to make fifty percent margin when they sell it, well, if I'm going to make fifty percent margin. Which, you know, if y'all haven't covered the difference between margin and markup, y'all should do that. That's a very important dif- difference. Um, that's an interview question that, that I used to ask. Um, markup is a tool. Margin is a percent of profit of the sale. Okay. Um, markup would be like uh, 50% margin would be you mark it up two times or, or 2.0 in multiplier. You know, so if, if I wanted to make 50% margin on a sale and it cost me $25, then I have to sell it for 50. Um, 50% margin is also the same thing as 100% profit. But I hate dealing in terms of profit as a percentage because it's always inflated. And no financial terms actually use percent of profit on their financials. I, I just, it, it, whenever you hear somebody say, oh, I made 23% profit, that really means they made about 12% margin. And it's not very impressive. They're just inflating it. Right. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I never, so. Um, 
if you buy something for $100, it most likely was originally sold for 25 from the manufacturer to the person you bought it from. And then they took their $50 cost of goods and they sold it to you for 100 um, And that's not always the case, um, but that's a general rule. So um, it's also the reason why you are seeing an uprising in the last five years of direct-to-consumer business models for like electronics or jewelry or um, – or anything really, anything at all, um, because the wholesaler doesn't have enough margin to fit a retailer in between them and the consumer, so they just go direct to consumer, and they'll spend the uh, they'll spend close to or less than the amount of the margin they would have lost to a retailer marketing it. If that makes sense. So I'm off. Uh, anyway, let me get us back on the track a second time. But I mean, these, these are started, technical lessons that are valuable. So I'm, I'm not going to shut you down when you're providing yeah. some insights. I started making my own stuff is where I was going. And um, so there's a few other things happening in my life. My wife was um, six months pregnant with her son, who my son will be one at the, at the day after Christmas. So, you know, not too long from now. And um, my daughter was less than two at the time. She was very young. And um, the, the biggest thing that was happening was um, I was unhappy in my career, in my life, not my life, like my personal life, but, but my career was making my life miserable. And the thing that, that, that was the, the hinge point that started all of this for me is that I'm not an unhappy person and it's not it's very difficult to get me to a point of unhappiness. And when I realized that I was unhappy, that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back where I was like, you know what? This company isn't going to have this power over me. I'm going to do something for my future and take it over. And when I say do something for my future, I don't mean freaking, you know, Phoenix university of Phoenix online classes. All right. I like I actually did something with it. Like I actually redirected my life, not took an <laughs> online course. Okay. Um, the world that'll just make you feel like you're doing something but in reality you're standing in the same spot six months later you know and um so we should probably talk about the like like results oriented change in it all no, and, and that's something we um, talk about is of course deliverables outcomes of course uh, all my students are familiar with the smart acronym uh so we're not just creating amorphous i'm gonna go to the moon well why yeah first of all the first question the principal question that most people don't ask is why and, yep. and 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 then following that how <laughs> what yep. are you going to use yep. to yep. do it yep. so i think uh, you've mentioned a couple of things but let's go back to that this is i think a perfect point to bring it bring back up that random jesuit term so of course i i i love ad majorum de glorium right so that's one of the ways that i live my life all for the greater glory uh, and honor of god that sort of jesuit motto that we we took from loyal in new orleans but you mentioned yeah. this, this self-aware term, and I remind my students, whether it be MBTI, whether it's using one of Arthur's mini books on the Enneagram, uh, whatever that tool is, StrengthsFinder, I encourage my students yeah. to be introspective, to actually, first of all, understand themselves so that they can ask the appropriate why. And of course, Ronald Reagan yeah. has some great yeah. quotes about education and the relevance of understanding what it is that you're trying to do, not just getting money, but trying to figure out what it is. But, so anyway, th this introspection, I think, is crucial to, to sure. actual success. And you mentioned the self-awareness term. So 
So that, that term was coagulation. Was it carpet? No, it, it's, it's, uh, the term is called casuistry. Um, and um, I'll tell you where I learned about it. <laughs> no, casuistry. Right, okay. Like, like take the word casual and take, take the A-L off the end and, and I-S-T-R-Y, casuistry. Um, and so, uh, I guess the best way to describe it is, is the way that Malcolm Gladwell describes it. Malcolm Gladwell is one of my favorite, favorite human beings on the planet. I I think he's a, I don't think he is an intellect and a, um, a thinker unlike most others. And he, um, what I love about his podcast and his books and all that is like, he's fantastic at, um, like uh, imagine he's driving a car he's he's fantastic at like tapping the seat the the passenger seat and be like here come sit down next to me on this intellectual journey and you think you know where the car's going and then all of a sudden it's like you know way different than where you thought you're going but you enjoyed the ride the whole time you know and and it's not in this crazy way he does it in this extremely um respectful but enjoyable fun way and you the best way to describe gladwell in in how he does his podcast which is called called the revisionist history um is when you finish a podcast you legitimately feel like your brain is fuller um and you feel like you're smarter he allows you to feel like you're smarter he leaves room for you to conclude things that he set you up to feel a certain way. And it's a genius emotional and, and mental roller coaster. And, and I, I, I just, I really enjoy him. But he did a podcast as a three part series on this idea called casuistry. And this, this um, totally changed my life. I've been thinking about things like this for a long, long time, but I had no way to um, really convey a term for it. But casuistry is essentially um, coming up with ways to find conclusions for novel problems um problems that haven't been just uh haven't been um delved into before um and uh there's another thing he says about them it's called diving into the particular um or and what he does is like okay if i say um it gives just to give an example let's say you saw a headline about a black man in san francisco shot unarmed shot by police okay that that evokes some feeling and just reading that or hearing that says oh there's a victim and there's an antagonist and this is wrong and what his point is in casuistry, and he actually uses something very similar, a story very similar to that, only with a Hispanic man in um, Los Angeles. He pretty much tells you, hey, check your emotions at the gate, wait till you have all the facts, break all the facts down independently, and then reconstruct how the, you know, the whole picture and then decide how you feel about it. So when he says dive into the particulars, he means break things into their parts chew on them separately and then imagine what it would taste like if they were all combined, you know? And, um, that's a really powerful thing because if you have self-awareness and you're also able to be in control of your emotions, which there's, there's a few, there are very few 
determiners of success in the world, future determiners of success. Grit is one. That's a whole nother podcast talking about grit. Grit is just somebody that has a burning desire to succeed that refuses to fail. And then there's also people that, you know, one of, one of the greatest traits of some of the best CEOs and leaders and companies, just leaders in the world in general, they have the ability to control their emotions. And they have the ability to control what they say, when they say it, how they say it, who they say it to. They are very seldom knee-jerk exploders of feelings. And that's what casuistry is about. It's like, okay, you heard something you disagreed with, which is really easy to do in cancel culture 2020. Now let's, let's make sure we have all the facts, the right facts. And then let's decide how we feel about it. And um, he uses a, an example of um, this uh, 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 Latino in um, Los Angeles that was killed by police. He was unarmed. There was a story a long time ago about an unarmed Hispanic man killed on the interstate, and all he had in his hand was a cell phone. And he tells that story. And when you only hear those facts, like a headline, CNN or you know, um, whatever news organization you want to listen to, the headline says, you know, Hispanic man killed, cell phone in hand, killed by police, unarmed, et cetera, et cetera. That's designed to make you feel that you should side with the guy that was killed. And what what's beautiful about that particular podcast is that was the third one. And he talks about how it was actually suicide by cop. And everything that this Hispanic man did was the reason why the cops had to shoot him. And it was a totally different perspective, totally separate from the headlines that we all heard when that happened years ago. And casuistry is like, hey, you, you heard something you didn't like. There's a novel problem. Okay, there's a, there's a point of contention. Let's not react yet. Let's chew on things separately. And then let's get all the facts and let's see if we still feel the same way at the end. And his point with casuistry is that it's not it, – very seldom do you end where you – with the same feelings that you began with. Um, and it's, it's um, massively powerful. Massively I was just about powerful. to say that's – I mean that's powerful, but part of the problem and, – and this is where, you know, of course, I, I will, I, at some point we got to bring you back to – your tenure, tenure at Fastenal and, and how that corporate experience, sort of air quotes, that traditional career origin developed you into a person who would challenge norms, would ask questions about the numbers yep. and Absolutely. How, how that foundational building. And then of course, you know, we've talked about the idea about college to careers before and whether college or university, this higher education has value. And I would advocate, of course, that it does have value. And I don't make any more money if I have five students or 100 students, um, as we talked about with that fascinating example. There, there's, there, there's a flat fee of $3 a year that I'm paid, so it doesn't matter who enrolls or doesn't. But I do yeah. think that that critical thinking, not the cliched term that we bandy about, but actual the actual ability to, as you mentioned, step outside of these 
social dictums that are really preparing you for corporate structure because they're corporations themselves. And I can't remember Correct. father so-and-so my freshman year argued with me about the battle of Kursk. He said, Oh yeah, the Germans won. And I raised my hand and said, no, the, the Russians won. No, you're wrong. And it's like, you've got a PhD, but my father came from that. So no. <laughs> and anyway, he's my said, last name is von Biedenfeld. How dare you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I didn't call him a peasant on. and I didn't slap him with my iron gauntlet. My, <laughs> my Guts von Berlichingen. Uh, hereditary yeah. iron gauntlet i didn't slap him but he sent me a polite email later but he never corrected it for the class so i had undermined yep. his authority instead of even not even with who cares about the credit right that's, but he didn't that's, a, that's very important that's a it's a great point is that 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 behavior that is a behavior of that that is part of like the systemic how dare you disrespect my authority even though i'm wrong I can't give I can't shift my power as the leader of this class to you who is historically correct. Right. Um, and and, and, and so factually and literally, but even so again, you think about that in a in a monetary standpoint or in a profit uh, sort of profit-centric environment where if the entire organization still has wrong thinking because there is a polite email sent behind closed doors, you know, behind the curtain, the wizard whispers out and says, oh, FYI, you're right. The, the, yep. the uh, Russians did end up winning that battle, but no one else knows. So the, so, exactly. so the educational value of the yeah. course, in, 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 in an, again, in a, a sort of profit-centric environment where people are dependent on corporate strategy or unified goals or integration of strategies to actually maximize returns on investments of resource and time, you don't see that because no one knows. And, and so I do think there's a value to this education, but, but you've also alluded to some of the dangers of relying too heavily on that corporatization that even begins with these standardized tests. And I, and I told an inappropriate joke in my classes early on um, to some of my students who were challenged by my essay questions. I said, you, you realize if I wanted to kill you, I'd just set fire to the room and give you a multiple choice test on how to get out of here. A, sit in your desk. B, uh, stand in the corner. C, come up to the front of the room and ask me for help. And none of you will leave because you'll be sitting here yeah. working with A, B, and C instead of just saying, there's a door, there's a window. My life is yeah. worth something. I'm escaping. I love that. Yeah. There's no, well, there's no help. I think that's fantastic. Right. There, there were some yeah. people that were offended by that, but oh well. Um, well, they can but, be offended. But I love but, this. Guess, I'm, I'm going to throw out some quotes real quick to, to, to kind of kind of kind of guide you a little bit because I do think I was thinking of dimming with you know some of the points you made where hard work and best efforts will not by themselves dig us out of the pit. Gladwell says we learn by example and by direct experience because there are real limits to the adequacy of verbal instruction. So we've got those. And and then Reagan, uh, if, if anybody still likes uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, education is not the means of showing people how to get what they want. Education is an exercise by means of which enough men, it is hoped, will learn what is worth having. And so we've, yeah. we've got these thought leaders, um, liberal or conservative, however you want to perceive of them or, or create this binary totem that governs who they are, right? Their identity, to your point about the headline. Mm-hmm. Um, and we mm-hmm. don't have these dialogues. So kind of where I'm going with that is, how do you even have this discussion that Gladwell is talking about in an environment of litigation, where if you mention Hispanic man, you're going to have somebody say, oh, you mean Latinx. Um, and if you don't, yourself, yeah. if you don't announce the proper pronouns, you could be sued. 
and 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 we've got you know an EEOC with with these classes of a person that even if you're right, you could still be in trouble. We've got mandatory yeah. reporting in the state of Texas where if somebody thinks they saw you smile at somebody, they can report you anonymously. You have to go into HR and explain that. And once it's discovered that oh, it was a consensual smile or there was no smile, we were never in the same room. The, the false accuser still isn't fired because they're protected under the mandatory reporting of the statute. <laughs> so that's, that, I mean, that, well, that's, that's also the MO of the media these days. And I mean, even, you know, even, um, uh, you know, not to sound contentious, but let's use the whole like Russiagate uh, Trump uh, accusation going on. That was a, a three year pursuit to try and prove Trump's affiliation with Russia during the election and all that stuff. And, when that was disproven, the media just simply brushed it under the rug. There was never any type of, um, there was never any type of apology or, hey, we were wrong. Sorry, sorry about that. You know, that never happens, and that's that's the culture that exists in corporate these days: HR, academia, government, all that stuff. And um, when you know, there's a reason for that is because everybody has a motive for why they wake up and go to work every day. Everybody has to prove their value. Everybody has to prove their worth. Everybody's got to justify their jobs. And um, this is an interesting perspective. There's only one subset of employees in the universe that don't have to justify their jobs. And it's salesmen or salespeople. Uh, so there I am being a mass, you know, a misogynist again. Right. You know, right. I sales, sales, sales people, um, saleswomen, salesmen, it doesn't matter. But the, a salesman is the only person in the company that pays for himself and everybody else. Everybody else, and I'm talking about for profit and private sector stuff, um, everybody else is a product. Or a uh, a cog in the wheel to deal with what the salesman brought in, and so you, we have yes, it's a combination of job security, you know, present day culture. Um, what I think is the, the the really disgusting part of the world these days, which is offend people that get offended. Um, nothing happens when you get offended, by the way. Like nothing at all. Your credit score doesn't change. <laughs> your late doesn't get your mail doesn't get delivered late. You know, your Netflix, your Netflix doesn't, you know, increase in price month to month. Like if you get offended, there is nothing negative outside of your own head that occurs at all. And now if there's a true, you know, action that was negative and there's something that is defendable and, and needs to be uh, not research, what's the word I'm looking for, and, uh, um, investigated, then um, that's different. But that's not offending somebody. You know, it, it, That's the problem with, with the society these days is that everybody's – people have a hard time finding their place in the world um, organically and positively. So a lot of people wedge themselves into the center stage of the world through accusations and bringing down other people. It's a really disgusting – trait in the universe these days and it's something that has been it's an ecosystem that has been created by blood-sucking lawyers such as yourself right um and (laughs) i love garlic too much yeah and um and so you know all that ecosystem has been you know the the cancel culture and also suing culture and all that stuff is terrible byproduct it doesn't make the world better in fact it just causes 
fake victimhood. And that's a terrible, <laughs> terrible, like, uh, byproduct in general. Well, it delegitimizes um, actual harms. It delegitimizes. That's exactly right. It, it is the modern day boy who cried wolf is what it is. It's really sad. Um, and uh, unfortunately, some people place things in motion and they simply cannot stop the train from moving anymore. Like from stop, they can't stop the train. it's in motion and then it has to go to court and it's found out in court that all of the allegations are false and both lives are damaged or destroyed. And it's a terrible thing for both parties. And it's just, it's sad to watch. And um, if people were more cognizant of their actions before they did anything on both sides, the accuser and the accusee side, then um, I think the world would be in a better place and lawyers wouldn't have so many beach houses, you know, (laughs) So, uh, all right, let me, let me get, let me pull us back to where we were in the story. So I started making my own apparel and, um, I literally, literally, I bought a sewing machine. I bought a, a laser to do cut out and engrave these laser patches and sew them on hats. And I literally just figured all this stuff out from scratch. Um, and a little bit of the internet, a lot of trial and error, a lot of wasted hats, a lot of wasted leather. And ultimately I got it down pretty good. I was pretty happy with the result here. And, um, what I did was I started making my own apparel and then I have a good friend of mine that owns a cooler company, much like Yeti or Arctic. It's called Gator Coolers, G-A-T-R. I made a hat for him just as like a test hat. Like, Hey, I'm still trying to make these things. Here's one for you. I use your logo. I'll mail it to you. He ordered like 150 of them. (laughs) Okay. Um, and then I started making them for people that he referred me to and they started referring people to me and so on and so on and so on. And here we are in December of 2019. I'm, um, I'm a year and a half later. I started my company in May on May 17th of 2019 by July 16th. I had replaced my salary with side work making hats for people leather patch hats specifically two months two months i of like quote unquote starting this company i um had replaced my what i, I doubled my income in a sense maybe that's a better way to say it um and at the same time i was really unhappy with corporate life and the company i was working for i was driving two hours a day for this job an hour there an hour back hated every second I was there. And ultimately July 16th, I put in my two weeks notice. My last day was August 16th, 2019. And I've been working for myself ever since. Um, and there is no better way to put this. It was f***ing terrifying. Um, it is like jumping out of a plane without a parachute, you know, and, um, and just believing that you would be fine when the ground came, you know, um, I, I remember thinking that I was going to track every weekday and month and like, you know, kind of like, you know, Shawshank Redemption, like drawing, drawing like a, 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 a mark on the wall for every year I was in prison or something. Like <laughs> I was thinking it was going to pass. I was thinking it was going to pass that slowly. And then, um, September 16th came along a month later and in that one month, I realized that I had um, I had not even 
thought about the fact that I quit my job a month ago, but I was also signing a lease into a new building to get out of my house and expand production. Okay. Um, and so within, um, this is what's really crazy about that year. So like I said, full time, August 16th through January 1st or, or December 31st, the, through the end of that year, I, in revenue, I did $191,000 in hats. Um, and was it five months, August, September, October, November, December, five months. Okay. Four and a half months. Really. I did $191,000 in sales. I profited $80,000 in six months. Now, again, that's my business. It's not in my pocket. So let's not confuse that. It's not like, you know, that's the problem with people that hear from business owners like, oh yeah, we made a million dollars. Well, yeah, you reinvested 999,000 of it. You cut yourself a $1,000 bonus. Congratulations. You know, um, and then this year, I hope you're not saying that government shouldn't just regulate as they, as they have been so effectively all of these years to the tune of trillion dollars <laughs> in debt, that they shouldn't just come into your business and take your net profits so that you can invest in R&D and then wonder why uh, that job is outsourced to another country. That, that's not at yeah. all what you're saying. No, that's not it at all, man. Okay. No, not at all. I, no, I, I, I want more government and higher taxes. That's what that's what I and all other business owners want. It's very it's very um, easy for uh, Warren Buffett. There's a Reagan quote about you know everyone who's um, uh, sort of uh, open to the idea of uh, abortion has already been born, and and without being controversial about that, there there's uh, the idea that everyone like Warren Buffett who is open to higher taxes has already made billions of dollars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just to, just to well round off this conversation, we should talk about race later. You know, right. we, we've got, you know, keep <laughs> it, keep it politically correct and non-controversial in every way. Yeah, absolutely. It's let's, we got, we, we skirted around abortion barely. Um, <laughs> and no, I'm just messing, but so here's here's what we did. Um, I moved out of the house after one month of going full time because I'd kind of just taken my house over with boxes of stuff. And um, uh, like I think there was a part I, I missed in this is that or maybe I said this earlier. My wife was six months pregnant when I quit my job. So like if you want to know how supportive and trusting my wife is of me and this working, just take a you know a. a a third trimester pregnant woman and tell her that you're quitting your highly stable corporate job where you make six, over six figures a year and tell her you want to make hats for a living. Um, and she's got so a good family name. Out. So I know that she's good people. Yeah. And so we, uh, we um, did just under 200,000 that first, you know, five months. And then 2020, we, um, we just crossed half a million dollars in revenue this year. I've got six employees. Um, two of them are technically contractors because I pay them piecework. Um, they are my seamstresses. They come in and they sew in the morning, they sew in the evening, and then we make the hats during the day and set them up for them to come after their other jobs. And um, that works really well. Got um, a really cool, fun work environment. I'm very non-traditional in that, as that aspect. Um, you know, if you want to listen to your headphones in, that's fine. If you know, listen to the radio on 10, let's do that. Um, let's just make a bunch of shit, get it out the door, make sure our, co our customers are happy, and let's make the best hats we can make. So my company is called Cersei Designs. Um, Cersei Designs, uh, we only focus on headwear. 
um, and custom hats. So embroidery, um, leather patch hats, you've got some other options as well, but it's an extremely popular sector right now. Um, you know, there's a lot of other people out there that are doing similar things on smaller and larger scales, like branded bills might be the, 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 the market leader. Um, there's another one called Holtz leather company, but we don't all do the exact same thing. We all have our little niches that we operate in. And, um, and so started that company, it's been a year, uh, a year and a half, um, since I started it and, um, having fun, um, make it, uh, this is a, a cool statistic, I think. Um, so my assistant who lives in Louisiana, she's remote. She helps me with a lot of digital and, and online stuff and task oriented things or she'll write emails on my behalf and whatnot. I put her on a, um, a project in our ERP system, our, our CR, uh, CRM, customer relationship management system. Um, and I, I said, I want to know how many hats we made this year. Can you give me that number? And so she pulled some reporting and did a couple of things manually. And then this Monday, which is well, three days ago, this is the first, second week in December that we're in now. Um, we have made to date for this year, 35,275 customized hats. Um, we, uh, some cool people that we made hats for in the last year, Joe Rogan, um, a big guy in the archery industry called uh, John Dudley's big deal. Uh, Jimmy Buffett is a big one. I made some hats for Eli Manning um, for the, I don't remember, U.S. Open golf tournament? I think, not U.S. Open. Um, uh, amateur, U.S. Amateurs Open or something like that. Pro-Am. That's what it is, Pro-Am. Um, and uh, a couple other big name people that we've made stuff for. So it's it's fun. It's cool. We we know two days are the same. We're always helping people out with their branding, making their their logos look good on on headwear and, and uh, a plethora of different ways. But um, you know, for me, this is starting this company, growing this company, growing it bigger in the next few years, and then and then one day having an exit strategy to to sell it and get out. Um, that that's the exciting thing for me um it's that's like next level thinking because like we said earlier you go to school to get a job well have you ever considered a business your as your product have you ever thought about selling an entire universe that you've created and so that's the realm in which my brain stays in is creating value, growing, building revenues, building profits, hiring more people, feeding the monster, um, and then one day marketing it to somebody that wants to wrap my company that I'm building now under a division of their other company. Um, and uh, that's, that's what I'm, that's what my, my thing is now is, you know, when I think about a path to wealth for me one day, my pragmatic approach to that is grow, 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 sell, start over from zero, grow, 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 sell. Or even, I think, uh, honestly, I think my next company, I'll probably just buy it, fix it, make it three times bigger and sell it then, you know? Um, and that's a different way of thinking than most people have. And, and, um, and you want to shift your paradigm, but some of these things, so I'll go to 
you know, Deming's 14 point recipe for total quality and say, you know, you're, you're evidencing the improving constantly and forever. And you've alluded to, but you haven't directly said how you're using the training on the job. That is, how are the lessons of your prior um, sort of pure equity-based uh, growth strategy companies, your corporatized and, and almost government-worthy archetype companies, how are those sure. things influencing how you do this? Because one of the, the things that I wanted to talk with you about as far as entrepreneurship, of course, was financing and staffing, but you've already specified that you don't believe in, you, you've got the Kurt Gerowitz model of, um, he wouldn't let me buy workout new workout shoes until I had been regularly attending the gym until uh, for three months. So I had a three month. Yeah, Kurt, uh, Kurt Gerowitz also drove a Honda Miata until he damn near couldn't get scrap value for it either. Right. You know, like, <laughs> That's so true, but, you but it to... sound, there's a, there, there sounds to be a parallel. There seems to be a parallel. It sounds like both of you are saying, rather than going out and buying the new running sho shoes and then going to the gym and discovering you don't like it, you invest if you if you've got running shoes, right? Um, the Miata might. You not should validate. You should validate your intentions before you make a large investment. I yes, like I it. Agree validate with you your intentions. 100%. Okay. Yeah, because well, we live in this world where, especially with social media these days, where you're allowed to revel in your bullshit fantasy. Okay, like you can just make something in your head that you think is your truth of your life, and you're just lying to yourself. You know, like you can say, I want to lose weight, but if you never go to the gym, then what makes you happy saying you want to lose weight or actually losing weight? You're going back to results driven stuff that we talked about earlier. So I agree with Kurt in that sense is that, okay, you want to spend a hundred dollars, $150 on workout shoes, go to the, go to the gym for three days a week for a month and then see if you still like it. You know, um, I, I agree with that, that. Mindset. I rely, I rely Maybe, on the news to validate my existence and the weather channels specifically because a lot of my coworkers <laughs> don't think that the town that I'm mayor pro tem of exists. And then it shows up on the weather channel. So I'm taking pictures <laughs> frantically saying, see, I'm, I'm deputy see? mayor of a real town. <laughs> um, well, I know, I know that was always your long-term career goal. Dietrich was, was just justifying your existence. So yeah. <laughs> As the youngest of four, it's tough to do. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, you know, we, like I said, we, we live in this world where your reality can be whatever you, whatever you are personally convinced it is. Um, the real hard part to, to deal with in, in the world these days is acknowledging when things aren't the way that you were actually happy for about you know, like people, we live, you know, we have instant gratification these days and, and people very seldom set a long-term goal and then pace themselves out to achieve, to achieve it. What people do is they set a long-term goal, but they really have four goals in front of it where if they hit any of those, they'll stop, you know? Um, and that's, that's where, you know, true, I'm, I, look, I, I'm, I'm overweight. I probably drink too much. I curse a lot. I have a lot of really bad vices and personality traits. So I'm definitely not like a life coach on how to be a better person. All right. I'm, I'm not that guest for you and I never <laughs> want to be that guest. All right. But I so think this is keeping thing. it if, real. As long as we don't move into Chappelle's keeping it real going wrong. I think we're safe. <laughs> if you, if you want, if you want, 
to be called out on your BS of, of, you know, happiness or your life or, or even, I mean, I, I could talk pretty extensively about the um, extreme disappointment of hitting your goals too soon. Okay. And then also the conundrum of what is a five-year goal? What is a 10-year goal? Like, do I have, do I even know right now sitting here on the phone with you, what would make me happy 10 years from now? No, I don't. Because I hit my five-year goals in two years in my career. I hit my 10-year goals in five years. And so my timeline in comparison to goal achievements is way freaking skewed. So the reality is I just live things. I, I look two years in the future. That's it. And if I'm always looking two years in the future and I'm always focusing on in, in uh, dramatically improving my life every two years, well, then in 10 years, I'll be five times happier than I am now. You know, uh, or sorry, maybe not happier. That's subjective. I'll be five times further ahead from where I am now. Stagnation is about my biggest fear in life. It, it, you know, that that's that that st sitting still too long is is um, I despise that, um, and settling in general is pretty bad. But I'm, I will I'm tell huge, you that a huge fan of contentment versus complacency, but you discover that contentment is, is, is a hard uh, sort of plateau to find when you don't want to be complacent. Yeah, well, I mean, okay, tell me, tell me if you agree with this. I'm, I'm just making this shit up. And maybe we should talk about thinking off the top of your head also, because we also live in this world where you can write everything down or text, uh, type it out and read it back 12 times and recite it and then send that email finally when you feel like you have it right. All right, so contentment is being happy for what you have now. Complacency is not being happy for, is not being happy and not realizing what you have. Would you agree with that? I would. Okay, so because I just made that shit up, um, and, and but, I think I think it's appropriate. But I also and I fully agree with the idea that we are so measured, so edited, um, so sterilized in our communication. Again, I, I, and we could talk about race in this and and how it inter interfaces with our with our staffing concerns when you want to hire somebody for a company, but you're concerned about um, sort of exploring diversity, particularly if you're a small business and you don't have a huge underwriter, uh, you know, you don't have this ma massive policy for your insurance. Yeah. Like I do for my city, right, where the Texas uh, Municipal League will just write a check to people that sue us. And I don't even have to worry yeah. about how much it is or where it comes from. Um, yeah, there's no but, consequence. There's no pain point to you specifically. Right. And so I'm, I'm insulated from those consequences. But we, we lose things in this. I think we lose our humanity to a certain degree, but that's another subject. But I do think that, especially when you're concerned with staffing, when you're not able to address latent or, or passive discrimination or bias or prejudice, because to acknowledge it, to say, hey, I'm curious why you wear that outfit to work, or I'm curious why you wear this cologne to work. It's very strong. Is there... Oh, now you're talking about my culture. Really? Your culture is, you know, Celine Dion's new fragrance? I That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Is this Madagascar? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a challenge, um, and, and, but, I, but I love that, that thought process, but I, I do remind my students that every pro has a con, every con has a pro. And so in the same way, I'll, I'll just analogize your hitting your, your peaks and goals sooner than expected, can be a can can sort of 
create concern as far as what your momentum is, then there's the scenario where you say, I'm going to take a picture with my mother tomorrow, and then your mother isn't there tomorrow. You take a, I'm going to, sure. I'm going to drive my car down to the beach and the beach is flooded, right? So you talked about the hurricane impacting your education. And of course, you know, we're dealing with a pandemic. These unexpected occurrences happen. And one of the nice things about my career is that I've always had it when I need it. Um, and so I've gotten the three law licenses that I don't use today. But were I to be uh, a congressman two years from now, I would have the job qualifications. I wouldn't be one of those people saying, I can meet the qualifications in 18 months, right? Do you have it now or can you meet it with eight? No, I've got it today. I've got the yep. procurement certifications. Um, so, I, so I invested in that early, so I've got them in hand, but also balancing that with how much did I spend on my Mississippi bar uh, licensure in an active status, so $350, $400 a year, before I realized, you know, I can pay $35 a year and reactivate it in 10 days, already saving me $900 a year. Um, yeah. so, you know, we, we, you know, we're looking, we're finding purpose, we're trying to understand education, how hard work factors into this. You mentioned the work-life balance, really, even with entrepreneurial, where your wife is six months pregnant and you're trying to do this new venture, right? That support. And it's all coming together. But are you allowed to be fearful? Are you allowed to express that fear to your friends? Are you allowed to have that open dialogue without, to your point about social media, someone stepping in and saying, what a failure, what a loser. You're, you're, you know, if your business is so successful, where's your Bentley, right? <laughs> and you're thinking, yeah, look, I, can't look, take the, I can't take the Bentley in the duck blind. It's, it's not- No, very, it doesn't float, yeah. You can't well, so, build so, right, out let's, of a let's, ditch let's, by uh, Cooter Browns and a Bentley. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, that, so you asked me something earlier about, um, about um, kind of getting off the ground with your business and um, getting started and, and kind of taking that big step. And um, what I have a couple of positive things to say that I would like to convey. And then I have a couple of um, very uh, unpopular things to say as well. Um, first of all, starting a business in something that is a legitimate venture that is proven to be profitable, scalable, and it's not a hobby. The difference between a hobby and a business is a hobby is something you do for fun that isn't necessarily repeatable income. A business is something that your fun doesn't matter, but is repeatable income. If you have fun too, good for you. Okay, that's the difference between. I think that's actually Mark Cuban's definition of it: is a, a hobby is something that isn't re repeatable income. A business is something that is, and. Um, the first thing to say about starting a business is that one of the beautiful things about social media and the connectedness that we have in the universe these days is that um, I feel massively supported by people. I very was I was very surprised. Really came out of the woodwork to lift me up as a business person, support my business, buy my products, refer me to their friends, tag me on Facebook when somebody wanted something made, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on for miles. The support that you get from the people you least suspect is incredible. On the opposite side of that, the people that love you the most are the ones that oftentimes are most afraid for you to succeed and it is it is conveyed to you as concern and worry when in reality they're just looking out for your well-being and sarah blakely talks about this sarah blakely is one of the world's uh, earlier uh, youngest 
billionaire women. Um, she created Spanx. Um, and she is, um, you know, she, she was a big setup entrepreneur. She pulled herself like out of a gutter career and started this company and is, is just a role model for all women and all business people all over the world because of her product and distribution and manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sarah Blakely says, if you have an idea that is truly important to you, do not tell anybody about it whatsoever until it is too far in motion to stop. And the reason why is because the people that you grew up around, your mom, your aunts, your cousins, your grandparents, your sister, they have a predetermined notion of who you are and what your path of life should be. And if what you present to them as a change path, a changing path in life doesn't match up with their future of you, in, like, of like what they think you should turn into, they are not capable oftentimes of being supportive or understanding what you're trying to do. And since those are the closest people that are influenced that influence us, your family, your mother, your, 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 your neighbor, your, your uncle, your football coach, whoever it is that is an influencer in your life. If you don't have their support, you won't follow through with your idea. You just won't. It's, it's human nature. We want like subconsciously, we want, we want to please the people around us. And if you come, if you, if you came to, um, your your mother and you said, "Hey mom, I um, I want to create. This is the '80s. I want to create a phone one day that's a, a tape player. Uh, so this is going to have a thing called the internet on it. It can make phone calls. You can call me anywhere in the world, and we can play video, watch videos, and FaceTime back and forth." If you say that to somebody that isn't capable of comprehending that concept or the future of it, they will shoot it down, and you will stop pursuing it. And so. My point of saying this, this is kind of the negative, is that your your greatest supporters are the ones that you don't know very well, that are most impressed by your bravery in doing something, and your biggest naysayers in the beginning. It's a very important thing to say in the beginning, like right out the gate, like just hey, hey guys, I'm gonna tell you this idea that I have. I'm thinking about quitting my corporate job to make hats for a living. Okay, in the beginning. Your family and your closest friends and family are going to be like, oh, um, are you uh, are you okay? Um, you know your wife's six months pregnant, right? You know, like that. That's their first reaction. It's not. And, and I so think this great. goes. I mean, this is this is biblical, right? No one's a prophet in his or her own land. And so, yeah, you know, if you if you go to Luke and you're like, hey, uh, <laughs> why why is this? I do think. You're right that we, and of course you you hunt everything, right? So why do geese fly or ducks fly in a flock and and in these V patterns, right? And and there are herds and you. Well, and hey, hey, I, I want I, I I gotta ask you this, okay? When because this is pretty scientific um, thing, and you might not know this. All right, you, when you see geese fly in the sky, have you ever noticed that? Um, have you ever noticed that one side of the V is longer than the other? Yes. Have you ever noticed that? Do you know why that is? It it has to do with the um, wind resistance, doesn't it? It's it's. Um... No, 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 no. That side just has more geese. Oh. <laughs> the the V pattern has something to do with wind <laughs> resistance. The V pattern does, but the lopsidedness is just because there's more oh, geese just... on that side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. There you go. You can use that one whenever you this want. Is, this is me so, overthinking everything. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why I set you up for it the way I did. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, you know, th- there's another thing as well, and this this is maybe more in tune with what you asked me earlier about um, uh, your students and their futures and um, what they should or shouldn't do. And um, I can tell you right now, since every we're all individuals, everybody has a different path in life. Um, so there's no right answer or wrong answer. There's no like, hey, do this three times in a row and you'll f- be successful. That's total bullshit. That's, I think that's actually why – that's the reason why um, – real estate people actually stop selling real estate and they just start writing real estate books and doing seminars because they make more money off the books and seminars telling other people how to make real estate, right? That's the scam. That's the beauty of it. It's like, I could, if I could convince a hundred thousand people to buy my book, then that's way more money than if I sold 10 more houses, you know? Um, and so the important thing to remember especially in college in your first couple of years out of school is that you need to rack up on things that you do not like. It is not about finding or confirming what you're good at or what you do like, because you already know that stuff. You already know what foods you don't like. You already probably know what, um, what occupation you, you want to be in. But it's e- if you find the things that you don't want to be like, you don't want to be like this boss, or you don't want to work in this state, or you don't want to be in this industry, racking up the, the don'ts is always going to push you closer to the do's. So remember that if you're unhappy or you have a terrible boss, or you have a terrible work relationship, or you have a terrible company, or whatever is not working for you right now that you don't want to continue long term don't be that upset with it because in reality you know you don't want to do it so you're going to quit and you're going to change direction and you that is the thing you should be grateful for which i guess kind of falls under um uh contentment in a sense but um so you know there's all these pressures these days on like well i need to know what degree i want to get i need to know what i want to do when i get out of college that's not really true unless you want to specialize in something like yes if you want to be a cpa yeah you got to take a certain path or if you want to be an attorney you got to take a certain path but if you just want to be a business owner one day there's 87 different paths and majors you can take to do that you know um, so det- confirming what you don't want to do is exponentially more important than realizing what you do want to do. No, that makes sense. Um, and then, and then another thing that Sarah Blakely says, which is, which is really powerful is that, um, misery or being miserable is a vital component. It's a vital catalyst to change because content happy people never do anything to make their lives better because where they're living now is their definition of good okay no, very seldom do people take good and want it to be the best well you, right? you just brought it back to N- napoleon right <laughs> what yeah. is napoleonic complex right so you you got you and Absolutely. me uh you know over six feet uh sitting on our on our on our lounge chairs and uh what is what is the impetus to go out and conquer the world uh, to get a date or, or get a better wine? You just go buy it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't 
compare myself to people very often. I don't compare my situation to anybody else's anymore. I really don't even look at my competitors very often. Um, the reality is, is I've, I've hit a maturity point in a, in a point in my career and in my, um, you could say my, uh, the way that I think is that I'm constantly trying to keep that growth focus using myself as a comparison because the problem with using other people as a comparison is that as soon as you become as good as they are, you stop. Like very seldom do you like very, like if somebody became as good as Michael Jordan in basketball, well, they're probably going to be content with the title of, Oh yeah, he was as good. He was as good as Jordan, you know, but if you can say this guy is the best basketball player of all time, you can't use Jordan as the, as the, um, the 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 bar for that you have to use all basketball players ever um and uh i don't know why i use a basketball analogy i hate basketball but um (laughs) (laughs) anyway um you shouldn't look at other people for where you should go in your own life you should you should it's not an easy thing thing to do you should be um constantly improving and constantly trying to hit the next level with yourself as a comparison and last year's um numbers or last year's um uh, achievements if you will i think resting on your laurels is something that a lot of us do um but especially in an entrepreneur as an entrepreneur in an entrepreneurial role I do wonder how you experience different challenges. So for example, a regular topic that I, I, I cover with, with folks I'm, that I'm speaking with and trying to sort of glean a little bit more information for my students and, and former students is managing projects versus managing people. But as you mentioned, it depends, context is key. So as an entrepreneur, have you found that that agility of your corporation, that uh, sort of ability to turn on a dime is a little bit better than when you're in a corporate environment, right? And so you said, this person's not pulling, pulling their weight. Um, not to say they're heavy, because that could be a protected class, no feeling. <laughs> but, but they're, they're, not, yeah. uh, they're not performing well, not devaluing them as a human. They have equal value and worth to everyone else. Um, and then HR says, well, have you put them on a performance improvement plan? Okay, you do this. And the performance um, can't can't be be matched. Um, there was a, a digression briefly. There was a, a gentleman on city council, Mr. Pickle, and he was in a heated debate with somebody about the meaning of the text. And the person kept asking more questions, and finally said, "I can read it for you, but I can't understand it for you." So, that's, <laughs> oh, that's, what a great burn! I right, love that. right. Thank you, Mr. Pickle. Um, Howard yeah. was a good guy, but but within that. You know, I think how 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 do you sort of juggle that? How have you seen entrepreneurial uh, again that that nimble or or um, flexible flexibility realized? And do you find it if if you do? I mean, do you find it to be an asset in your success, or do you miss some of those corporate structures? Right? Because as as an attorney, I will say I don't want to manage an IOLTA account. I don't want to have to hire anybody. I don't want to have to answer any phones. I just want to do the legal work. No, no. The only the only thing I miss about corporate is just an unlimited line of credit. That's about it. That's about the only thing that I that I um, I wish I had currently is I wish I could say, oh, I need another fifty grand. You know, to, uh, wire it to me by lunch. Um, but 
I, first of all, you've got to remember as a business owner, um, depending on how, how, um, engaged you are in your business, um, you, unless you're buying a business, unless you're buying something that somebody else has built and has been operating for a long time, typically when you're a bootstrapper starting from absolute zero, the people that work for you are your people. And that's a very important thing to remember is because, um, you know, not all employees and not all people are created equal. Everybody has different strengths. Everybody has different scheduling abilities. Everybody has um, totally different input output measures that are uh, input output um, abilities that can be measured or are measurable. And um, there is no such thing in my mind as equal employees. And what I mean by that is that everybody has to, uh, you can't manage everybody the same. It's not possible. It's not, human beings are not meant to be uh, uh, managed exactly the same. Managing people and motivating people is what I mean by management, not management like, hey, you're three minutes late, but but Tom did it and he's cool. You know, that's not what I mean by managing people differently. What I mean is that if you manage people with a a broad stroke of the arm and you say, okay, I'm going to treat all of you exactly the same. What mean what that means is that if you never get down, really get to know your employees and what matters to them, then you never really do a great job of managing or working with them because you don't know what matters to them. And I'll you I'll give you I'll give you um, two examples. And I remember your question. I'm gonna go back to it. Um, let's say you have a single mother um, that has a seven year old kid that's in school, and she's unmarried and um, that person, that mother, is going to respond so much more favor- favorably to a boss or a manager or a business owner that is understanding of her need for flexibility than, say, another coworker that is a single 23-year-old man out of college, okay, lives – he could live with his parents. He could live in an apartment by himself, has nothing but a dog that depends on him. Okay. Flexibility is not what the 23 year old needs, but if a, the seven year old gets sick at four 30 and your employee has to leave work five times a month to either drop off or pick up her, her kid during work hours, your ability to manage those two people separately, maybe that's more of a motivator type of thing. But but if you say, no, I'm sorry, so-and-so employee, you can't do it. If you shut her down and she can't take out care of what is most important to her and her life, she will leave. And she will find a place where somebody will work with her because she's a great employee. She does a great job. She probably gets more done in a shorter time frame than other employees that are watching the clock. And she will be a very loyal employee forever. But if you do like, hey, sorry, you can't do it, five o'clock or nothing, your kid's just going to have to wait, well, then you might as well post her job position because she's going to give you a two weeks notice pretty soon. Um, and, but back more specifically to your question, when, you are, when you're a business owner starting from zero, you're bringing your own people on board. Um, you're not inheriting employees. You're not. That's why I said, unless you're buying a business that's already been operating for a long time. If you are starting from zero, you are 
highly in control of who you choose to be on your team. And that loyalty and that, um, that degree of, um, uh, how can I say this, that the expectations you have for those people, they, they're going, they're on this roller coaster ride with you. You have to remember that entrepreneurial businesses are in their first, second, even third year are roller coaster rides for employees and the owner. It is the owner's job to stabilize the work, the work schedule and the finances for the employees so that they don't feel like they're all over the place and they have no stability. But as far as like what the company could be doing in two years compared to when we started last year, that's a totally different conversation where like, yes, they can take that. They can take the juking. They can take the hard right turn. Okay. With you, as long as you picked the right people to go on that path with you. So, um, you know, there's a lot of people that cannot adapt to change whatsoever. I have a saying from some old employees of mine when I was in management, like with some people, slow is fast and fast is slow. You push too hard, you're just going to push them out of the company. They need to take very long, slow, wide turns into a different direction. And then you got other people that can just juke like a wide receiver. Okay. And those are the great ones. Those are the ones that we're most attractive to because they typically make the least amount of excuses or they typically are the most um, – they almost enjoy the hard right turns, or the, or the, the hard redirections, if you will. Um, but that's, a, that's not something that you can really give an, an assessment test towards. There's no Myers-Briggs for how fast you adjust the change. Um, and if, if there is, then I don't know about it, but that's something that's just a gut feel of like, okay, if I took a hard right with this guy in the passenger seat, would he hold on or would he want out of the car? And those people that you choose early on in your company, they have um, a lot to do with your future success because those are the ones you're trying to build a foundation with and for for the next level and the next generation of employees that are going to add the company once it's much more stable. And it's really kind of, it just set itself on cruise control on the interstate and there's not a whole lot of veering left and right anymore. You know what I mean? I want to touch on something though. And I don't, again, I don't know because of the recency of this sort of transition where relative recency, if you've really got a perception of this yet, but I wonder if sometimes people have inherent sort of personalities that are, either subdued or that that are created in a reactionary resistance to the corporate culture. And so you, you have somebody that could turn right with the company, but they're moving slower. And so in that sense that the smaller company, because not only are you able to better vet or more effectively uh, look at the minutia in the selection process than maybe a bureaucratic structure where there are certain checklists and you have this pool of applicants and somebody gets weeded out because of something that for the actual job wouldn't matter, but for the corporate structure does. Um, and in a smaller mm-hmm. company, you don't have to look at that. But in the sense of morale, because I, in my experience, um, I, you know, I think back to a job that I had where uh, I had a, a director who would circle my time back from lunch, right? So I had three degrees more than she did. Um, I did more work than she did. And I always gave her credit for it and made her look good. And at a certain point, I, you know, I think it was in security, she started circling, you know, that I was five minutes late from lunch. I was a contract employee. I didn't have a one hour lunch break. 
And of course, I uh, like you said, I just put in my my month's notice. Like, bye, I don't need this. But exactly, I yeah. was a talented employee. I just didn't want to bring my talent to an organization that didn't have my back or didn't have that reciprocal loyalty. And so, before I forget, I do want to touch on that equality thing because I one of my favorite short stories is Vonnegut's Harrison Bergeron, right, where the ballerinas wear weights and the smart people have noises in their ears. I think I, that's recommended reading for all my students to see the challenges of trying to create not only an equal uh, environment because that sort of forces people to the lowest common denominator, but also yep. the unrealistic nature of it and how it's against our nature, particularly in Western nature of excellence, right? We have this manifest destiny, capitalistic conquest, pioneering spirit that's in our collective DNA, even though we're a nation of immigrants, of the few things that we share, which we don't even sort of share a common language, right? We, we're one of the countries that doesn't have a national language. Um, and so we don't have a lot in common, but I think that's part of our spirit. Even the immigrants that come here come with that um, sort of latent or, or um, at least desire, that the seed of desire to demonstrate excellence, right? They come here to achieve. They don't come here to sit on their on their on their butts and you know collect a check. They come here to make something of themselves. They want to do that. They go to Sweden or something. So, mm -hmm. so um, I you know I th I think of these things. I think about what I mentioned earlier: managing projects versus managing people. And it sounds like all of these aspects of managing projects, um, managing your successful direction, come back to the individual. And then in that, do you? Have you found that it's easier to demonstrate loyalty and boost morale in your smaller company? Have you found that not only the, the vetting process or the selection process for you to onboard, source and onboard um, qualified applicants is easier with, with a smaller company? And would you lose that as a corporate or larger entity? Um, or do you think that you have certain pieces of advice or tools that you would use if you added 100 staff tomorrow that would ensure, and I'll give one more example. Um, my father- No, I, 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 see what, I see what you mean. Well, yeah. I was gonna say my father worked for the Texas Veterans Commission. Um, this is like his fifth career since coming to the United States. He loves serving, he loves you know serving the people. And he said, there was a huge return of veterans from Iraq, Afghanistan. And they went from, the Texas Veterans Commission went from like a 200 person entity where you'd say, bye Joe, I'm gonna be off for three weeks and you'd shake hands and go to, 3,000 employees, and they had to, for legal purposes, create uniform policies so that people weren't just taking off and, and the pregnant folks weren't off for nine months and, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's obviously a, a, it's a different, a different, um, a totally different uh, core business ecosystem there. So, you know, when I hear you give me those, like this, this option A, option A or option B, like I'm a small company now, there's seven of us total or six employees seven of us and um and uh, that's that's like a family right it really is um i do have a rule where i'm not I, I i refuse to be friends with my employees there's just nothing good that comes from that you know um it, it's a really good way to set yourself up for either comparison or resentment from your employees or um there's a lot there's things my employees do i don't want to know about you know like let's let's just keep it uh nine to five or eight to five monday through friday and um, I like you 40 hours a week and then we'll pretend we don't exist on the weekends because uh, you live your life. I live mine. Let's not delve too much into what we both of us are doing. 
Um, but here's the thing is that it doesn't mean that I don't love my employees and I, I could not survive without them. I chose them one, each one of them handpicked and, um, and we all have a value that we provide. I too, I'm not like, you know, the one at the back of the carriage cracking the whip and they're pulling us. Like a lot of times I'm the one that's there early. I'm the one that's setting the, um, the pace for the day, the week, the month, um, setting the production schedule, setting this, you know, all the, all that stuff. But when you compare my company now to a, like you said, a hundred person company, um, I, that's not a realistic comparison because, there are things that we do now as a seven-person company that I love that I would never want to change no matter how big we got unless it just got to the point where my five lawyers are telling me I had no choice. Okay, And so when I think about your, your A scenario versus B scenario, what I think about is the time in between and the growth that it would take to get there because it's not possible to snap your fingers and say, oh, we're 100 people you know, next week, we're not a, we're not a Silicon Valley startup that's trying to create some SaaS software where I need a hundred coders and two engineers, you know, immediately, you know, that's not the pace in which I grow my company. So my answer to you would be, as we grow, it would, it would, that corporate structure and culture would grow with us. And in, as I said earlier, it's more important to know what you don't want to do than what you do want to do. There's a lot of stuff that I despise from corporate that I, I, even though I understand why it exists and I understand how it exists and I understand all, all of the rationale and justification for why we have X rule because you know, some guy got drunk at a Christmas party and now we can't have Christmas parties anymore. You know, like I understand why, how these things occur. And um, I'm not so dense that I can't, I'm going to think that I, I can't, I won't have to instill that stuff one day. I would rather build some sort of culture, cultural corporate structure that is um, fair to everybody. We all have to, we have to live by rules. There are consequences to your actions, but let's not make it so robotic that I forget that all of y'all are people too. That's the problem with corporate is, is, is the, tr it's where you are treated as a number rather than, you know, Jason from, from customer service. And if you don't even know Jason's last name, how are you going to call him a family member? You know what I mean? Um, how are you going to have a relationship with him? That's so, that, that is, um, that is important enough to him and to you that if either of y'all were to leave or see each other leave, you'd both be upset. And so that's the type of corporate structure that I would like to build one day is where, yes, we're growing. Yes, we're bigger. Yes, we have to instill some bullshit HR rules, and I understand why, and I'll probably help y'all explain why too, and we'll all agree to them. But we're not going to forget that we're all people and that we all are doing this together. Um, because that's, that's the important thing here that I really think that's the difference between a small business and just a corporate monstrosity is when you just start dealing with people as like caches or, or like, or, or like data sets rather than humans, that's, that's a, that, that is a problem in America these days is treating people not as individuals anymore, you know? I'm thinking about that. I'm, I'm, I'm chewing on that a little bit because there, there is that challenge of 
everyone being an individual, but uh, if your opinion is different than mine, uh, that individual opinion doesn't matter, right? So we, we've covered a little bit of this and, and some of the inherent idiosyncrasies and hypocrisies that have developed that I think make the workplace more challenging. And some of these things, of course, are going to happen naturally in that sense of, as we have more people trying to do tasks that we've automated, there's going to be more competition for resources. So do we end up in a society like Star Trek where uh, money becomes irrelevant and we all just work for the collective good? Or do we end up like a society like they, they have on the earth in the series, The Expanse, where most people are just on welfare because there aren't enough positions for you to demonstrate your excellence um, for the population? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't really. I'd have to brush up on my Star Trek teacher. To <laughs> You're too really busy get that analogy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> too busy walking through a swamp somewhere. Right. Well, yeah. let's. We we've already gone over. You know, my my prescribed time limit, which you already said you you're not going to adhere to my norms. Uh, my social constraints do not apply to you in your universe. No. So, and I and I'm loving the content, and I I know that um, the listeners are going to really extract quite a bit of value from our, our dialogue and even those little hidden points. And sometimes I'm, I'm a little suspect about what people are getting until like today, I had a student uh, on a Zoom call explain to me all of these nuances that he drew from some of my PowerPoints that I had forgotten I had included. And so I do think that there's a lot of content here that we can delve into and that we could revisit with different perspectives or also build upon in a subsequent episode. But if there's any general advice that you'd like to give in our closing about education, hard work, family and, and work balance, managing people, uh, anticipating the unexpected or any of those things, I would love to hear it. Um, so my, uh, I, I would say, I would say this, um, don't get so fixated on what you could lose that you never acknowledge what you could gain. Um, I think that's a, I think that's a really big problem in the world these days is that um, everybody thinks that what they have now, meaning what, what I could lose, what I have now, my possessions or my family or, or um, my uh, insurance or my, um, uh, this is the, the worst one of all, my vacation days. Okay. Um, it, Never think that what you currently possess is the pinnacle of what you could ever attain. That's a fallacy. That is, that is wrong. If you think that, then you'll never have more than what you currently have um, or what you had in the past. At that point in time, you just become Uncle Rico from, um, from Napoleon Dynamite, like you said earlier. Right. You're, living in the, you're living in the glory days about how you could have gone to state, but you didn't, but you blew your arm out. You know, um, And so if you, if you focus on um, you acknowledge that what you have is good, which is contentment, um, but you also acknowledge that you want more, and then you put a plan in place on how to achieve that, then you will end up with more than you ever thought you could have. And, and what I mean by that is I'm, I'm not rich by any means. I'll, I'll tell you right now, I make way less money today than I have in the last four or five years, but I have I still have financial independence. I have no debt other than a mortgage. Both my vehicles are paid off. My kids aren't in school yet. Um, and I set myself up in a good financial position to take this risk when I did. And 
I will eventually get back into a six figure salary and then have annual bonuses of good amounts of money. But it's going to, I have to grow my company and pull a lot of people up with me to earn that amount of money again. This isn't like, this isn't like, Oh, you know, somebody said I could make 80,000 this year. And last year I only made 55. It's not how it works. You have to earn exponentially more money for you to be able to able to afford that extra $25,000 a year. And um, that's, you know, there's something that we've kind of, I, I feel like we're, I feel like, you know, in our conversation, we're about, we're not really acknowledging, like we're kind of circling around the difference between creating something from zero, which is what an entrepreneur does and joining something or growing something that already exists. And I, I brought that up when you asked me, if, you know, to compare my seven person company to a hundred person company. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to get hired as a CEO of that hundred person company that like nobody's putting me on top of that mountain. And that's all of a sudden my reality in a very short time period, I have to grow it there. That might take a year two, five years from now. And, um, and so that's the world that I live within is I live in the world of everything is an option we could turn left, right, go forwards or back up at any second, any point in time. And technically it's all based on what I feel like doing as the, as the, um, the owner and the, and the, I guess the CEO, I don't really think of myself like that. Um, but everything could be different. And when you join something that's long standing, whether it's government or a corporation, or like you you said, you're, you're, uh, something about your dad and the Texas Veterans Association or, or whatever that association was. Those are things that have been there for a long time and they will be there a long time after your dad works there and the government will keep going a long time out after you get out of politics and your company or your, your university or the classes that you teach will keep going with another professor one day. And in my world, my question is, how do we start the university? How do we create the Texas Veterans Association? What do we need to do to get um, you know, this off the ground? And um, that is, is extremely daunting, but it's where I derive my greatest value from. Because as an entrepreneur, you have to be a creator of worlds in a sense. Um, because if you're not, well, then all you're doing is just copying something somebody else has done or getting on board with somebody else's train. Both of those things sound just repulsive to me. I'm not going to lie, but that's, that's, that's why I'm, that's why I'm me though. You know, um, I, I can't wake up and go work for somebody else because I'll question why they built the system the way that they did the whole time I'm at, I'm at work. That's just how my brain works. So, um, anyway, um, uh, you know, the, the gray, the in-between, the, the creative process, the, the, not creative, the creation process of like starting something from absolute zero other than a meal. Like when was something in your life that you started from zero? You know, I, I mean, it's, kind, it's not, you don't have to answer that, but just think about that. We don't do that very often as humans. As consumers, we're almost always accepting whatever our, our options in front of us are. You know what I mean? Um, 
and uh and so that's that's the way my brain works that's the way i i think um and ever since taking this this venture and starting my company um i have now i don't want to say convince but i have helped push people that have a lot of the same um disdain for their career that i did i've helped push them into their own um a creation of their own world and and financial and business and, and employment independence because the you know it, everybody everybody can hold a machete but you it takes a special person to walk up to the jungle and actually start swinging it and a lot of times that last final step of getting that push is all that people need and i've now convinced three separate people that are very high up at their company one of them was a cfo at a 30 million dollar a year company okay I've convinced him to start his own C his own CPA firm working for himself. And he's got 12 clients now and he's making twice as much money as he did nine months ago when I first met him. And, and so like, I've be, kind of become this Jehovah's witness of, um, of personal freedom with your career and, and letting people know like, Hey, you don't always have to work for an owner. You don't always have to be on somebody else's bus or boat or train or whatever analogous vehicle you want to talk about or bring up. Um, you can build your own boat and you can have people join your boat and all, and there's benefits for both sides. It's not, you know, delegation is one of the biggest key, biggest um, uh, traits that the most important traits that a CEO or an owner should have, because if you don't, then you're just a control freak. You never let your you never let your employees succeed. You never give them a chance. You never give them enough rope to hang themselves if they so chose to. You never gave them enough rope to make anything cool either, you know. Um, and so, being like having the mindset of creating something from zero or starting something uh, or taking something that's at a low level um, position and bringing it uh, up into a, a high, high level operation. That's, that's my passion. It really is. Um, that's what I love more than anything else. I like the challenge. I like the difficulty. I like the, um, uh, I, I just like balancing everything. That's what I enjoy doing. And, and, and that is a great contrast against working for somebody else and making somebody else a bunch of money, you know? And it's, I mean, I, and I think you've hit on a few points that I, a lot of our demographic are going to appreciate as far as understanding that fear, right? And challenging the stability or, or as we mentioned, the complacency of $40,000 a year for the risk, but potential reward of a million dollars a year, but not only the money, but also the actual career satisfaction, the actual ability to find meaningful work and contribution yeah. to your community, to your environment, where you're an active participant, not a bystander or someone being acted upon. You are an actor in your own show. So with that, Kyler, I'm going to uh, let you go. And I appreciate your time and energy with this podcast. I very much appreciate it. And I hope that you will join us again. Absolutely. Let's do it anytime.